This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For information on how you may obtain an accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree with online courses, please visit us at virtual.rts.edu. Well, thus far we have uh, been spending a, a considerable amount of time kind of building our understanding of uh, the covenants and of covenant theology. Uh, we've seen the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, both in the, uh, the pre-temporal intra-Trinitarian Council of Peace and then in the historical outworking of that Council of Peace. Uh, and in that historical outworking, we've seen the covenant of grace come into clearer and clearer revelation through these uh, progressive uh, covenantal administrations, as we've called them. And it's only this morning on the, the last day of class that we're getting specifically to the New Testament. Now, that, that might strike you as a, as a bit lopsided, uh, and certainly you could spend multiple semesters looking at the, the full breadth of covenant theology, and you could spend a long time looking at various passages in the New Testament. But it seems to me that in large measure, when you get to the New Testament, what you find mostly is the application of covenant themes from the Old Testament. Uh, you don't find so much development as you do application. And so by understanding the themes that have been revealed and developed in the Old Testament, you're prepared to understand uh, and to utilize the covenant themes in the New Testament. Uh, the Old Testament, in large measure, has revealed the sort of covenantal substructure to God's redemptive purposes. And then when you get to the New Testament, uh, the, the dots are connected, the blanks are filled in. Uh, you, you, you're, you're working off of what you have found in the Old Testament. So hopefully by spending... Uh, some concentrated time in the Old Testament covenants and the ideas of the covenant in general, uh, you'll be equipped really throughout your ministry uh, to, to handle uh, not only the Old Testament but also the New Testament uh, from a covenantal perspective. But in trying to get a, a brief handle on the New Testament use of the covenants, um, it's probably helpful uh, to focus on a couple of places in particular. Uh, the New Testament use of and fulfillment of the covenant is probably most clearly and most succinctly seen in two different places within the New Testament, in my opinion. Uh, first of all, in the fifth chapter of Romans, and then again in Hebrews chapter 8 through 10, that uh, well-known passage where covenant is so prominent. So what we're going to do uh, this morning is to look at those two places uh, in the scriptures to see what they have to show us about how the New Testament uses and how it develops uh, covenant theology. Uh, in some sense, this might be too stark of a division, but in some sense you could say that uh, Romans 5 majors on the continuity of the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, where, or excuse me, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, whereas Hebrews focuses more on the development from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And it's certainly important for us to understand both aspects, so we will look at both of those uh, places in particular. And we'll start off looking specifically at Romans chapter 5. Now, Romans chapter 5, 
in a lot of ways, is where you start to see all that we've been learning about covenants, all that we've been finding about covenant theology, you see it start to really come to bear on the lives of God's people, on how Christians today relate to God, and how that relation is, in a very profound sense, a covenantal relation. Now, at this point in the course of God's revelation, you have all of the information, so to speak, that we've covered so far in class. All of the information about the covenants that we've been finding is sort of the background for what you read and learn in Romans chapter 5. God has this eternal purpose to have a people. God, uh, Adam's sin in the covenant of works has brought sin into the world. But as God had revealed in Genesis 3.15, that sin wouldn't derail his purpose to have a people. Uh, He would preserve a seed of promise, and from that seed he would raise up one man who would crush Satan. Now as God had progressively revealed his purpose through the various covenantal administrations, we've come to realize that this promised deliverer will serve as the mediatorial representative of his people. We saw that with particular clarity in the Davidic covenant. And this uh, mediator would accomplish his purpose by making God's purposes guaranteed through the forgiveness of sin. Uh, We saw that last week in uh, the prophet's development of the new covenant. And all of that is shaping the sort of expectation from the Old Testament that's latent in the New Testament and that is latent here in the fifth chapter of Romans. And Paul, in fact, conjures all of that up when he declares in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, he says there, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a a profoundly important statement there when Paul says that we have peace with God. Now, if you recall, God's covenantal purpose has been to have a people, uh, but sin has worked contrary to that purpose. It's created enmity between God and man, but then God has continued his pursuit of this covenantal purpose by turning the hearts of his people so that their enmity is not against him, but against Satan. Uh, He has created this peace uh, within his people. So, in a real sense, the, the declaration of peace with God is the declaration of the fulfillment of God's covenantal purpose. Of people who are His, who are with Him, who are at peace with Him. Uh, it, it's no light thing, or it's, it's no just passing filler sort of comment when Paul says that we have peace with God. Uh, it's, in a, in a real sense, the fulfillment of God's covenantal purpose. And in There in verse 1 of Romans 5, Paul even declares how it is that we have this peace, how this peace has been brought about. We have this peace, Paul says, through justification. He says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has brought this peace through justification. He's accomplished His covenantal purpose that He's been seeking through eternity. He has brought it to pass through justification. Now, of course, there we have to uh, bear in mind exactly what justification is. Uh, it's, it's very easy and it's very common to have a, a truncated and really a sort of halfway view of justification. Uh, a full view of justification, the one that y'all have been getting or will get here at RTS, is uh, of a justification that consists of two parts. Uh, first of all, 
justification includes the forgiveness of sin. Uh, the guilt of the sin that we've committed is washed away. Uh, sin is expiated. God is propitiated. All of the effects of sin on our relationship with God are washed away. Uh, our sin is forgiven. Uh, but in addition to that, in justification, we also are given righteousness. Uh, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to His people. Uh, we're made righteous in God's sight. Uh, there's a, a, an enormous difference between being simply forgiven and being positively righteous. And in justification, we are made to be both. So when Paul addresses in Romans chapter 5 the accomplishment of God's covenantal purpose through justification, he's addressing the accomplishment of God's covenantal purpose through the people of God being made both forgiven and righteous. Now, Paul really starts to, to bear down on that and to develop, develop all of it, to, to develop all of it in terms of covenant theology uh, when you get down to verses 12 through 21 of Romans chapter 5. That's a, a passage that uh, several of you used for your sermon assignment. You use either the whole passage or part of it. Uh, and it's, so some of y'all are, are well familiar with it already. Uh, but it's in those few verses that we want to focus most of our attention uh, here in Romans 5. Now, in order to understand this particular passage, uh, you have to be able to keep track of exactly what Paul is discussing. Uh, and to help, to help with that a little bit, hopefully I gave you that little uh, rough diagram uh, of, what, uh, or of what Paul is doing in the passage on that little half-sheet handout. And as you can, hopefully, it's clear, hopefully you can tell from the handout, uh, Paul begins the passage in verse 12 by starting a comparison. Uh, just as you are in this room this morning, so I'm in the room this morning. That sort of a comparison. Uh, he starts that sort of a comparison in verse 12, but he only gets halfway through the comparison before, in verse 13, he begins a long parenthetical note. And in that parenthetical note, Paul does two different things. First of all, in verses 13 and 14, Paul proves what he just had said in verse 12. And then in verses 15 through 17, Paul qualifies what he just had said in verses 13 and 14. And then after Paul has wrapped up that parenthetical note at the end of verse 17... He comes back in verse 18 to conclude, you could say, uh, the comparison that he started up in verse 12. He completes the comparison there in verses 18 through 19, and then in verses 20 through 21, he goes on to make a, a further point. So as, as Paul, as, particularly as you get into the, the, the portion there, verses 15 through 17, as Paul is qualifying... Uh, what he has said about a comparison that he's only done half of to date, it can be easy to get uh, a little bit lost as to what he's saying. But hopefully that breakdown of the structure will be uh, somewhat clarifying for you. But given, given the structure, what exactly is Paul saying? Well, in verse 12, uh, Paul begins his comparison. And he begins the comparison by essentially collapsing into one verse all of the consequences of the fall all of the consequences of Adam's failure 
in the covenant of works. Uh, he says there in verse 12 that sin entered the world through one man, that death entered the world through that sin, that death spread to all men because all men had sinned. So in, in the sort of four bullet points, Paul has summarized the effects of Adam's failure in the covenant of works. Uh, as the, the federal head or the covenant representative of all of humanity, when Adam sinned, that one sin passed upon all of his posterity. We all sinned in him. Uh, Adam's sin penetrated all of humanity. It's a pretty powerful point that Paul makes, and it's one that's clear. It's, you know, it's the, the crux of the covenant of works in a lot of ways, uh, that when Adam's teeth broke the flesh of the fruit, you sinned. Uh, the sin of Adam has penetrated all of his posterity. Uh, you see this, and we've, you know, we looked at it back you know, several, a number of weeks ago in the covenant of works. Um, as God had uh, clearly announced beforehand in, that, in the covenant of works, as He clearly had told Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, that transgression of the covenant had brought death. Uh, by eating of the fruit, by breaking the covenant of works, Adam has not only sinned, but he's brought death upon himself and upon all of his posterity. Uh, he has, uh, by his sin, accomplished, in a, a negative sort of sense, everything that Paul discusses there in verse 12. So in verse 12, you have the effects of Adam's failure in the covenant of works spelled out. Uh, through the terms of the covenant, uh, he's brought sin into the world, and through that sin, he's brought death. Now, down in verse 14 of the passage, Paul makes clear that he has Adam and Adam's sin in view there in verse 12. But if you have an understanding of covenant theology, when you come to Romans chapter 5, you don't need that clarification. You realize that there in verse 12, Paul is talking about Adam's failure in the covenant of works. Now, given our understanding of covenant theology, what Paul says in verse 12 makes sense. Uh, the suggestion that one man's sin should bring sin upon all of mankind and death upon all of mankind, uh, in light of our understanding of covenant theology, uh, all of that makes sense. It's logical. But it, it's interesting to me that in his letter, Paul shows uh, a real, what I think you could justifiably call a, a pastoral wisdom in recognizing that that statement most likely would not make sense to a lot of the people reading his letter. Uh, in verse 12, Paul's claim sounds logical to us, but it is a radical claim uh, that one man's sin has led to the death of all mankind. And Paul seems to have a sense that this will cause some of his readers to balk, to be a little bit confused. And so when you get into verse 13, in this parenthetical note, Paul sets out to prove what he just has said. It's almost as if he's, you know, he, he sensed that this will need a little bit of uh, verification to a lot of his readers, and so he introduces this rather lengthy parenthetical statement to prove what he said. Um, now I think, just as, as a side note, I think that all of us as uh, Reformed theologians would do well uh, to learn from Paul's example here in Romans chapter 5. Uh, all y'all are in seminary, you're either being confirmed and strengthened in things that you already knew, or you're learning 
new things and you're excited about what you're learning. Um, either way, you are becoming confirmed in the truths of the Scripture, in the Reformed understanding of Scripture, and you're surrounded by people who are of largely similar viewpoint. And for the most part, people who are able to give their entire time to the study of those doctrines. Furthermore, many of you probably are worshiping in churches uh, and even serving in churches, for a lot of y'all, where the same thing to some degree is true. Basically, you're surrounded by people who are steeped in Reformed doctrine and who understand it quite well. Now, when you leave seminary and you go out and serve in the church, uh, for some of y'all, that'll still be true. For some of y'all, it won't be. Uh, you'll be surrounded by people in your congregation um, that either don't know the truths of the Reformed doctrine or who know it but don't fully understand it. You know, they could uh, recite it back to you, but they might not understand its foundations. And so we always need to be careful, I think, to be like Paul here in Romans chapter 5. We need to have a, a sense of or an awareness of those things within our theology that are shocking, uh, things that need to be explained a little bit more, that need to be uh, brought out, uh, that need to have their foundations exposed a little bit. Um, we need to be attentive to things that uh, either are not understood or that might be um, they might be known in a very superficial sort of sense, but not fully understood. You might go to a congregation where everybody would say, yeah, we have original sin, but they might not really have come to terms with the fact that Adam's sin in Eden kills them and their children. Um, there's a, a depth to doctrine that perhaps has not been explained and that if you're their pastor, it's your calling to explain it to them. Uh, so I think it's, it's helpful here to note that even the, the theological giant the Apostle Paul uh, has this awareness of what might be surprising to his readers, and he takes the time to explain it. But anyway, uh, back to uh, what it is that he's explaining, not to get off on a, a side sidetrack there. Uh, Paul has sensed what he, that what he says in verse 12 is uh, fairly radical, so he begins this parenthetical note in verses 13 through 17. And in particular, in verses 13 and 14, he proves the truthfulness of what he has said in verse 12, that in Adam, uh, sin and death have passed upon all mankind. Now, in verse 13, Paul refers to the law, as he calls it, and clearly he means there the Mosaic law. Uh, in verse 14, Paul makes that clear. He refers there to Moses. But again, given our understanding of covenant theology, when Paul simply says the law, we know what he means. He's referring to the law of the Mosaic covenant. And Paul makes the rather obvious observation that even before the law was given, sin was in the world. As Paul goes on to say in verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Now death, as we know, is the consequence of sin. And death was in the world from Adam to Moses, so clearly sin was in the world from Adam to Moses. Uh, the book of Genesis is one long account of that presence. Uh, sin and death were rampant prior to Mount Sinai. But, Paul, as Paul points out, there could be considered a problem with that. Uh, as Paul points out in the second part of verse 13, sin is not imputed when there is no law. Now, 
various people use this statement and they run off in all sorts of directions. But Paul's point, it seems to me, is pretty simple. Sin is the violation of the law. If you've learned your shorter catechism, you know that. Shorter catechism says that sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Uh, Without a law to transgress or a law to fail in conforming oneself to, sin loses its defining characteristic. Uh, Without law, sin becomes a very uh, undefined or poorly defined category. But yet still, prior to Sinai, death was in the world, and death is the consequence of sin. So sin must have been in the world. In other words, there must have been something other than the explicit transgression of revealed commandment of God that was bringing death upon all men from Adam to Moses. God always judges justly. He wouldn't assign to men the penalty of sin if there was no sin. So there must have been something other than explicit transgression of revealed law that was bringing sin upon all men from Adam to Moses. Now what was it outside of a written commandment of God that was bringing this sin and this death? Well, Paul's point is that it was the sin of Adam. After Adam, no man had to break a commandment in order to commit sin. Each man already had committed sin in Adam, just like Paul had said in verse 12. All men suffered the wages of sin because of the sin that they had sinned in Adam, because of the sin that Adam had committed on their behalf. So, from Adam to Moses, you have ages in which men are clearly paying the wages of sin, yet there is no law given by which sin can be defined, uh, by which sin can be imputed, and from which death can then result. Uh, From Adam to Moses, something was killing humanity besides the explicit transgression of revealed law. That's what Paul gets at there in verse 14 when he writes that death was reigning, as he says, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Now, Adam, as you remember, Adam sinned by explicitly disobeying a revealed commandment of God. Adam was told, don't eat, and he ate. Uh, he, He clearly broke an explicit command of God. Now, the men who died from Adam up through Moses, uh, their situation was different. Uh, There wasn't an explicit command from God in the same sort of way, and yet they were all dying. So you kind of get a sense of what Paul is saying here. Uh, All men are dying from from Adam up through Moses. Death comes from sin, and so all men are sinners. Yet there's no explicitly revealed law through which and by which sin could be defined and imputed. So men must have been dying because of something else. And that something else is the thing which Paul had uh, written about in verse 12. Uh, In Adam, all men have sinned, all men have become sinners. Uh, This one thing outside of the explicit transgression of revealed commandment of God that's bringing sin and death into the world is what Paul had described in verse 12, uh, the federal or covenantal sin of Adam. So to make a a long story short, if I haven't made it too long already, Paul is essentially using the covenant of works and the implications of the covenant of works to explain why everyone from Adam to Moses died. 
Now, of course, you not that the covenant of works stopped once Moses came along. That's not what Paul means. Rather, he's using this period in redemptive history because it's the one period in which there is no revealed law. It, it's very clear during that period that the uh, federal sin of Adam is what is causing the death of men and women. And in the, at the end of verse 14 there, uh, Paul puts a, a very provocative point on everything that he said. He says there that Adam was a type of him who was to come. Now there, of course, Paul has Jesus in mind. He's saying that Adam was a type of Christ. Now, if you were sitting down and reading Romans from the start up through this point, uh, you would have realized that Paul is leaving no doubt that what Christ does has implications for his people. Uh, Christ's work uh, affects his people. And Adam, Paul is saying, was the same way. What he did had massive implications for others. He was a type of Christ. Uh, as we would say, being covenant theologians, he was a federal head. Uh, his actions, his covenantal actions, were impacting those who came under him. Now that's the, the first part of Paul's parenthetical comment there in verses 13 and 14. He essentially proves what he had said in verse 12. But then when you get down to verses 15 through 17, Paul goes on to qualify what he just had said. And while there certainly is a, a critical similarity between Adam and Christ, there also is an equally critical dissimilarity. And here in verses 15 through 17, Paul draws attention to that dissimilarity. Uh, now there's you know, a good bit of detail there in those verses, but in the interest of time, we won't dwell on those verses in particular. Uh, essentially, what Paul says there in verses 15 through 17 is that while Adam brought sin and condemnation upon others, Christ brought justification and life. Uh, Christ undid what Adam had done. Uh, where Adam had found damning failure, Christ had found life-giving success. You know, so there's a similarity in their position as covenant heads, but there's also the radical dissimilarity in what they accomplish as head. Uh, but what we, rather than spend much time in those verses, what we need to uh, pay particular attention to is what Paul says when he moves out of this parenthetical uh, comment. Uh, if you remember up in verse 12, Paul had started a comparison. He had said that through Adam, sin and death had come into all the world and had come upon all men. And evidently, that, that relationship is like something else. Paul had started a comparison. He was saying this, uh, this entrance of sin and death is like something. But then he had delved into this parenthetical comment and had left his comparison incomplete. But when you get down to verse 18, he resumes the comparison. And in particular, when the, the first part of verse 18, Paul essentially restates uh, what he has said. And when you get into the second part of verse 18, Paul sets about really completing his comparison. Just as condemnation came upon all men because of one man's sin, so justification has come through one man's righteous act, Paul says. Now there's some disagreement uh, Y'all who have done some of your sermon or your paper on this passage 
probably realize this, there's some disagreement over exactly what is meant by this righteous act of Christ. Uh, some people say that this righteous act refers to Christ's atoning death, uh, that it has his crucifixion specifically in mind. But it, it seems to me that the, uh, the best way to understand Paul here is to realize that this righteous act of Christ refers really to Christ's righteous life. Uh, it's the entire course of his obedience. And this life of righteous obedience, Paul says, justifies the people of God. Uh, there in verse 18, Paul refers to a free gift resulting in justification of life. Now back up in verse 17, Paul had referred to the gift of righteousness coming through Christ, and it seems reasonable to assume that the free gift that brings justification in verse 18 is this gift of righteousness, of Christ's righteousness, that Paul had mentioned in verse 17. So in other words, Paul is saying that Christ's righteousness is given to or is imputed to his people and then justifies them. Now when you get down to verse 19, all of that's clarified and summarized. Uh, Paul writes, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Now on the one hand, that statement there in verse 19 uh, condenses with a pretty good bit of clarity what Paul has been arguing. Uh, that whereas Adam's sin made men sinners, Christ's obedience has made men righteous. Uh, Paul condenses what he's been saying thus far. But we also need to note something that Paul implies there uh, that's very important. The, the condemnation-bringing work of Adam and the justification-bringing work of Christ are being held by Paul in the very closest of parallels. Uh, where Adam had failed and brought death, Christ had succeeded and brought life. Uh, the unavoidable conclusion that you have to make from that is that Adam's disobedience and, and Christ's obedience have occurred kind of on the same covenantal footing, you could perhaps say. In other words, whereas Adam had brought death through the covenant of works, Christ has brought life through the covenant of works. Whereas Adam had brought death by failing it, Christ has brought life by fulfilling it. Now if you remember from earlier in the semester, we had said that in the covenant of grace, Christ essentially fulfills the covenant of works on behalf of his people. Uh, in a sense, and this could be pushing it a little bit, but in a sense, the covenant of grace is a covenantal economy whereby the people of God have their sin taken away and have Christ's work in the covenant of works applied to them and counted on their behalf. Uh, Christ has brought righteousness in the same way in which Adam had forfeited it, uh, through the covenant of works. Christ has won a righteousness there in the covenant of works and that then brings justification to his people. Now, in verses 12 through 19, Paul has essentially held forth the entire sweep of redemptive history under these two men, Adam and Christ. Um, you know, Adam has brought death and condemnation through, the, through his covenantal failure. 
Christ has brought life and justification through his covenantal success. Uh, Paul has summed all this up, but he hasn't, rather notably, said too much about the law. Uh, Paul had referred to the absence of the law back up in verses 13 and 14, but he hasn't said too much about the presence of the law, about the function of the law. And so it's to that point that Paul turns his attention in verses 20 and 21. Now, in verse 20, Paul says that the law entered that the offense might abound. Uh, The law, rather than restraining sin, has actually increased sin. Now, of course, there's a, a wide range of disagreement on what Paul means there as well. But, again, I think it, it's fairly clear what Paul means. Uh, Paul's point is that the dead hearts that all men have inherited from Adam essentially wanted nothing to do with obedience. So when the law came and gave specific instructions for obedience, men's sinful hearts sought specifically to contradict those instructions. Uh, In a sense, and again this might be pushing it a little bit, but the law caused sin to abound by telling sinful hearts how to sin, in a sense. Uh, By revealing righteousness, uh, it uh, exacerbated the sinfulness of men's hearts. Uh, it made sin to abound, or the offense abound, as Paul says. Now, if that's the case, if the law actually increased or antagonized sin, why did God send it? And Why give the law if it's only going to make sin worse? Well, Paul makes it clear that God sent the law to magnify the glory of salvation in Christ. Uh, prior to the law... Sin was every bit as pervasive and as wicked as it was after the law, but it couldn't be seen. After the law came, men could see their sin. They could see the pervasiveness of their sin. If you look at Romans chapter 7, it's through the law that Paul comes to see his sin, to see its wickedness, to see its pervasiveness. Uh, The law is making sin clear. And what that does is that it makes the grace of Christ, the grace that overcomes sin, It makes it all the more evidently glorious. Uh, As Paul says, as much as sin might have abounded, grace was seen to abound all the more, as he says there in verse 20. Essentially, in disclosing the sinfulness of men, the law pointed to the power of the justification and the life that are in Christ Jesus. And overall... And, and in fairly short scope, that's how Paul explains uh, the great covenantal purpose, the great covenantal work of God. If you remember back up in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul had drawn our attention to that great covenantal work, uh, the bringing of peace between God and His people. And then in verses 12 through 21, Paul has explained the foundation of that great covenantal work. Uh, Through Adam's disobedience in the covenant of works, sin and death have passed on to all men, but through Christ's obedience, justification and life have come upon all of his people. Paul has explained God's great covenantal, or God's great eternal redeeming work as a covenantal work. Uh, He's used, as you've noticed, categories that have been imported from practically all of the divine covenants that we've studied so far. Uh, 
Paul has dealt in depth with the federal sin of Adam from the covenant of works. Uh, we, in chapter 5, verse 1, uh, Paul had spoken of the promised peace, which harkens back to the, uh, the promise of God in Genesis 3.15 that he would turn the hearts of men so that their enmity was not with him but with Satan. Uh, we, it harkens back to the sort of enmity become peace between God and his people there in Genesis 3.15. Uh, also in Romans 5, 1, uh, something that we hadn't had a chance to deal with in any depth, uh, Paul had mentioned there in chapter 5, verse 1, that this peace between God and man has come uh, by justification that is by faith. Uh, clearly uh, referring us back to the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, also, the law is figured prominently. Uh, the law both highlights the lawless nature of the period between Adam and Moses, and it explains how, by aggravating sin, the grace of Christ has been highlighted. So we see there the law, the Mosaic covenant, and all of this work is being channeled through one man, one covenant head, one mediator, uh, picking up that emphasis from the Davidic covenant, and all of it has been presented as being certain and secure through the forgiveness of sin, which, as we saw, was the great emphasis of the new covenant. So, bound up without offering stark distinctions between them in the course of his argument, Paul has drawn upon and assumed the covenant of works, uh, the declaration of the covenant of grace in Genesis 3.15, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant. Uh, Paul is working out of categories that make no sense outside of covenant theology. Uh, Paul has very clearly explained God's great central work as a covenantal work. And as he's been doing it, each stage of God's mounting disclosure of his covenant has been critically important. Uh, Without any one of the components, the rest of Paul's argument falls apart. Uh, Without the covenant of works, his argument makes no sense. Uh, Without the creation of peace that we find in Genesis 3.15, his argument makes no sense. Without the law that we get through Moses, his argument makes no sense. You see what I mean? Uh, All of it works together. So it seems to me that Romans 5, verses 12 through 21, is really central in establishing the biblical importance of covenant theology. Uh, When Paul is explaining how sinners find peace with God, essentially when he's explaining the gospel, he does it covenantally. And even when that explanation requires some clarification, it required a good bit of clarification there in verses 13 through 17, uh, even then, uh, even when explaining salvation covenantally uh, can be rather technical and involved, it still is the way that Paul chooses to explain salvation. Uh, Very clearly, Paul's understanding of salvation is of a covenantal salvation. Um, It's a... it's striking to me how, uh, how entwined covenant theology is with Paul's basic explanation of how men are saved. And particularly, uh, we need to note, it seems to me, the importance in all of that of Christ's fulfillment of the covenant of works on behalf of his people. Uh, in other words, uh, the importance of the active obedience of Christ. Uh, Paul very clearly shows and his argument there that Christ actively wins in obedience. Uh, Paul speaks of him rendering a righteous act that procures the free justification of his people. 
this is clearly Christ's active obedience being imputed to his people. Uh, you can't miss the fact as you read through Romans 5, 12 through 21, you can't miss the fact that God's people have a righteousness and that that righteousness is specifically Christ's righteousness. Uh, there is an imputed righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ that saves the people of God. That's central to Paul's argument. And in all of that, it seems to me, we see how seamlessly and how fully covenant theology explains the gospel. It's the, the framework upon which Paul relies when he tries to explain how it is that we have peace with God. Um, now, just two uh, notes to consider uh, quickly as you perhaps at some point seek to apply these truths in your preaching and your teaching. Y'all would probably apply them better than I. Uh, but just some things to maybe get your uh, thoughts going. First of all, I think it's important to bear in mind, and this is perhaps my opinion, but it seems to me that the doctrine of the imputed righteousness of Christ is one of the most underapplied truths in all of theology, uh, which I find to be terribly tragic. Um, what the doctrine of the imputed righteousness of Christ tells us, among other things, is that in the eyes of God, we are no longer defined by our sin. Uh, we're defined, rather, by the righteousness of the Lord of glory. Now, when you, you all who are serving in churches now are perhaps already realizing this, uh, others of you who aren't, you will re realize it, that you'll, you'll minister, in the course of your ministry, you'll minister to saints who genuinely grieve over their sin. Uh, we think of our society as being hardened to sin, and our society at large is, but there still are saints within the church who grieve over their sin. Um, there'll be a sin in somebody's past that he'll be con the man will be convinced that when he walks into a room, even when he walks into the church building, that when other people see him, they think of that sin. Uh, if he's uh, has had an affair, he thinks everyone thinks of him as the man who had the affair, the unfaithful husband, uh, you know, whatever the case may be. People grieve over their sin and feel that they have become defined by their sin. But the glory of the imputed righteousness of Christ is that in God's eyes you no longer are defined by your sin. And when God looks at you, He doesn't see your fornication, He doesn't see your theft, whatever it might be. He sees the righteousness of His Son. Now certainly, you know, abiding sin is uh, important and needs to be mortified. I'm not downplaying that. But there still is the wonderful and necessary comfort of knowing that the righteousness of the well-pleasing Son of God has been imputed to His people. It's a comfort to God's saints. It's one way in which some of these truths can be applied. The second idea, maybe could get your mind going, is that this uh, understanding this Adam-Christ parallel can be a very strong engine for evangelism. Uh, if someone doesn't believe in Christ, if he isn't in Christ, he's in Adam. There's no other option. There's no third place he can be. He's either in Christ or he's in Adam. And if he's in Adam, death awaits him through all of eternity. Now, especially this is especially striking, I think, in verses 13 to 14 of Romans chapter 5. 
Because there, Paul shows us that even if there are no additional violations of God's written law, the sin of Adam still brings death. In other words, people who we might look at as good people or moral people, they're still condemned if they're outside of Christ. Uh, The imputed sin of Adam still drags them to hell. Uh, Men can do nothing to escape the sin that we've sinned in Adam. Uh, All men, no matter how upstanding they are in the community, they all need Jesus. And I think understanding that stark division within humanity, if it's pressed upon God's people, it challenges us to take the gospel to all people. If you don't believe in Christ, it doesn't matter how good you are, because ultimately you're condemned. It's another potential way in which people more gifted than I could perhaps apply the passage uh, in the course of preaching and teaching. Now before we uh, keep moving on, does anybody have any questions about what we've seen so far there in Romans 5? Now, I think that um, I think you, you certainly could make um, make that point, uh, particularly. Yeah, well, I think, uh, especially there in um, verse 21, uh, Paul says that, uh, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, granted, he's speaking specifically of reigning through righteousness, reigning through the righteousness of Christ. Um, But there's also the the, the strong corollary uh, that grace... Grace does reign through righteousness. That if, if we've experienced grace, uh, that grace is exercised and seen in our life through righteousness. Not only the righteousness that's imputed to us, uh, but the righteousness um, of, a, of a new heart, uh, seeking after obedience, um, you know, living a, a life that's different from the, unright- the clearly unrighteous life that had preceded it. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.